0: Uh, Romans chapter 14, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Hear the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you be with us this morning. We do pray that the cares of this week would uh, fall away as we spend an hour um, of our attention focused on you. Lord, we pray that um, as we come to your word, that we would come in expectation. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would move to your direction and to your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In our reading from... Romans 14, Paul talks about how we should deal with people in the church with whom we disagree. In case you haven't noticed, Christians sometimes disagree with each other. I hope I'm not shocking any of you with that news. Now, maybe we in the church have no more disagreements with each other than people do in other organizations. The Democratic National Committee has its spats as i am sure do the american association of candy technologists and the ancient order of odd fellows and the beer can collectors of america yes those are all real organizations i know a candy technologist and my grandfather was an odd fellow and when i was a teenager i was a dues paying member of the beer can collectors of america you would think that an organization Dedicated to collecting and displaying beer cans, most of which were pulled out of dumps, you would think that in such an organization there would be little opportunity for conflict or for disagreement, but you would be mistaken. There was a knockdown, drag out fight in the BCCA over whether or not members would be allowed to sell cans to other members. It was a struggle for the heart and soul of this organization, a group that had been formed with the high-minded ideals that our club was a brotherhood and real collectors would trade with other collectors but would never allow money to corrupt their hobby. But others disagreed and so the BCCA split into the money and the non-money parties. I belong to the non-money party, which Is hardly surprising since beer can collecting is a perfect hobby for a kid with no money. I'm sad to say that in the end, the moneyed interest won the day. And what had started as a noble fraternity devolved into a trade association of disgruntled flea market vendors. I think it's fair to say that any organization... As long as humans are involved, we'll have the opportunity for conflict and disagreement. But in the church, somehow, things are supposed to be different. Here's what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow. How about that? How are we doing with that? And then in John seventeen, we hear Jesus pray for the future church. This is called the high priestly prayer. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The unity of the church is a sign to the world that we're something different, that we're not just a social club. Then in our reading this morning from Romans chapter 14, Paul, the greatest church planter of all time, starts his discussion about conflict in the church by telling the church not to quarrel, Over opinions. And he concludes by saying, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. In the 13 verses that we read this morning, the words judge and judgment show up five times. Now in the original Greek, those words actually show up eight times. Our translation hides or mutes three of the times. All of that talk about judging and judgment might remind you of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, namely, judge not, lest you be judged. That's a verse that gets quoted an awful lot. I think it gets quoted more by non-Christians than by Christians. So, if unity is an essential mark of the church, and if judgment threatens unity... You might think that the church would be a judgment-free zone. If Jesus, the head of the church, says don't judge, and if Paul, the all-time biggest ambassador of the church, says don't judge, you might think that when the world looks at the church, they would see a judgment-free zone. But of course you know that's not the case. In the minds of many people, judgmental is synonymous with Christian. In a large study published in 2007, the Barna organization found that 87% of non-church-going Americans between the ages of 16 and 29 describe Christians as judgmental. And half of church-going people in the same age group said that Christians are judgmental. Why is there this gap between what Christianity seems to teach and how we live our lives as Christians? Turns out this is not a, a simple issue, and it, it's an issue that deserves more than a sermon. It deserves a whole book, but since I'm here to preach a sermon and not write a book, let me give you right up front an executive summary of what Scripture teaches about unity and judgment. And Then we can dig in a little bit into how that teaching is fleshed out in Romans chapter 14. Here are three points. In an executive summary on biblical teaching on unity and judgment. Point number one. The church is and always has been united around a set of core beliefs. Affirming and trusting and being guided by those core beliefs, those essential doctrines, is what marks someone as a Christian. Number two. Because these core beliefs, these essential doctrines, are the source of the unity of the church, the church can and must, in all cases that undermine these core beliefs and essential doctrines, be willing to judge and to struggle. And it must do this for one simple reason, to maintain the unity of the church. Point number three. Outside of these core beliefs, There is a whole host of things that various Christians believe or don't believe. And regarding those non-core beliefs, the church is not to judge. And it must do this for the very same reason, to maintain the unity of the church. So here's the summary of the summary. Judgment and non-judgment both serve the same goal, to maintain the unity of the church. All right, let's talk about some of the details in chapter 14. Paul tells the Christians in Rome to stop quarreling over opinions, to stop judging each other. And he tells them to stop because they're quarreling and they're judging are damaging the unity of the church. Believe it or not, the issue that they were quarreling about, the issue that they were judging each other over, was vegetarianism. Some Christians in Rome were meat eaters, and others were vegetarians, and each group was passing judgment on and looking down their noses at the other group. Some things never change. Vegetarianism typically has a religious or an ethical foundation. Some people might not like the taste of meat, but they're very few and far between. Mostly, vegetarianism is a discipline in which individuals overcome their natural desire for meat to fulfill some higher good. Hindus are vegetarians because they believe in reincarnation and think that animals have souls like humans. For a Hindu, eating meat is like cannibalism. Many Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. All Seventh-day Adventists follow the Old Testament kosher laws, some of which we read a little bit earlier. They avoid unclean meats like rock badgers and pork and shrimp. But about 35% of Adventists avoid meat entirely. It was John Kellogg, a Seventh-day Adventist, who invented the cornflake as a way to give Americans a vegetarian breakfast to replace bacon and eggs. Aside from religious motivation, some people are vegetarians for ethical reasons. They want to prevent cruelty to farm animals, for example, or they want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that come from animal farming. In Rome, during Paul's time, vegetarianism was a religious issue. The Roman church was composed of Jewish Christians, some of whom continued to observe the kosher food laws that they had grown up with, and it also had Gentile Christians who didn't. For someone who eats kosher, finding kosher meat in a Gentile community can be difficult, and so one kosher option is to go vegetarian. If you're not sure about the meat, you can always eat the vegetables. And in Rome, there was also the peculiar pagan problem that much of the meat in the marketplace had first been sacrificed to idols, and some Christians, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, had qualms about eating meat that had been sacrificed to a false god and had qualms about buying meat from pagans. Paul talks about this at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And there he says that it's okay. It's okay. To eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Because an idol is just a big nothing anyway. And he says that our freedom in Christ allows us to eat anything. But he also says that if your conscience bothers you about eating the meat, then don't eat it. So in Rome, there were Christian vegetarians who were vegetarians because they had religious scruples about eating meat sacrificed to idols, and they looked down their noses at the meat eaters who did not share their scruples, and they judged them to be some kind of unwashed, unprincipled heathens. And then there were the people who did eat meat, even meat sacrificed to idols, not only because they liked meat, but because they knew that their freedom in Christ allowed them to do so. And those folks looked down their noses at the vegetarians because of their scruples and judged the vegetarians to be narrow-minded legalists who didn't understand the gospel. To eat meat or to not eat meat? That was the hot debate in the Roman church and it was a quarrel that was tearing the church apart. Theologically, Paul sides with the meat crowd He believes that any kind of food is allowed to Christians. And he calls the more religiously scrupulous vegetarians, he calls them weak in faith. Paul sides, theologically, with the meat crowd. But he tells both the meat eaters and the vegetarians to stop fighting about this, to stop judging each other, to stop despising each other, because their fight is destroying the unity of the church and because this fight is not over a core belief or an essential doctrine. Which creates the unity of the church. And that raises the complicated question. What kinds of things should Christians quarrel about? Paul does not say that Christians should never quarrel. Paul does not say that Christians should never get into a theological argument. You may have noticed that Paul spends lots and lots of time in his letters in complicated theological arguments. Paul never says, oh, believe whatever you want just so long as you love Jesus. That might be a Facebook meme, but it's not the Bible. The briefest answer to the question, what kinds of things should Christians quarrel about is this. We should only fight over things which threaten to destroy the unity of the church. Christian fighting should not create division. Christian fighting should be about preserving the unity. And that only happens when we focus on core beliefs, on essential doctrines, which create the unity of the church in the first place. Throughout the history of the church, the church has formulated statements of its core beliefs, its essential doctrines. The earliest example of this, of course, is the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed contains 12 statements. It contains just 76 words in Latin. Obviously, the church... Teaches and Christians believe many, many things beyond what is contained in the Apostles' Creed. But the twelve simple ideas contained in the Creed were put forward by the church as a statement of what must minimally be believed to call yourself a Christian. It begins this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If I don't believe in an all-powerful God who made heaven and earth... I can't call myself a Christian. It goes on. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. If I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if I don't call Him my Lord, if I don't believe in the virgin birth, then I can't call myself a Christian. It goes on. To tell us that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell and the third day he rose again from the dead. If I can't believe that Jesus was crucified and that he rose from the dead, then I can't call myself a Christian. Those are some of the core beliefs of Christians. These are essential doctrines that give unity to to the church. The church around the globe. Christians speaking all kinds of different languages, Christians in different cultures, Christians with a wide variety of worship styles and music, what binds them together into a unity is precisely these core doctrines. And it is regarding these core doctrines that the church must be willing to judge and quarrel about and fight over. Because without these core doctrines, the unity of the church evaporates. We are Christians because of what we believe. I can't say that I am a Christian and then choose to believe whatever I want. What I believe is what distinguishes me from non-Christians. And it is what makes me a brother to other Christians throughout the world and throughout all of history. So what happens if someone who's been raised within the church says... I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. And I don't believe he was raised from the dead. What's the church to do? Well, that's when a fight needs to begin. And it was precisely that kind of fight which led to the creation of our denomination. In 1980, Mansfield Kazeman, an ordained pastor in the United Church of Christ, applied to be a pastor within our former denomination. During his examination by the National Capital Union Presbytery, a commissioner asked him, and I quote, Do you believe Jesus is God? And he responded, No, God is God. Another commissioner asked, do you accept the shed blood of Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God, as a prerequisite for salvation? And Kazeman replied, and again I quote, what does that mean? Before the questioning was over, he also denied the sinlessness of Jesus and the bodily resurrection, but he still thought that he should be ordained as a minister of the gospel. And so a fight began. First at the presbytery level, and then at the synod level, and finally at the national level within our former denomination. Those who supported his ordination said that he was a nice guy. He'd been raised in the church, he'd gone to a good seminary, he'd done a good job in his last congregation. And those who opposed his ordination said the man simply didn't believe the things that the church had always taught. They said that the sinlessness, the bodily resurrection, the vicarious atonement, and the deity of Jesus are all core beliefs, essential tenets of the Christian faith, and that no one who denies them can rightly claim to be a Christian, much less be ordained as a pastor. Well, I guess you know how that fight turned out. In January... 1981, our former denomination ordained and installed Kazeman as a pastor. And by September of that same year, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church was born. And 12 churches met at its first general assembly at the Ward Church in Detroit. And that denomination has grown every year since its founding. We are now more than 600 churches. Though it was a new organization, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church wasn't saying anything new. They were teaching what the church has always taught. And in that way, they have remained united with the global and the historical church of Jesus Christ by remaining true to the essentials of our faith, by remaining steadfast and being willing to pass judgment about core beliefs. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church has preserved the unity of the church. But not everything that Christians believe, is essential to our faith. Not everything we teach is a core belief. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has a long discussion about women covering their heads when in church. Apparently the women in the church in Corinth were not covering their heads and Paul was unhappy. He writes, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now some of you might be old enough to remember when women wore hats to church. I remember my grandmother would not go out of the house without a hat on. I'm not sure if she did this because of this passage in 1 Corinthians or because it was the style of the time. If you look around this morning, you won't see any or many women wearing hats. It's no longer the style. But in the Mennonite church and in the Brethren church, women still cover their heads, and they do it in obedience to Paul's instruction. One of my favorite stories about Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, and a story I was warned to not tell this morning. A story that several people have told me, and I've heard it from a number of different perspectives, is about the time back in the 70s or the 1980s when Pastor Bill Groff stood in this pulpit and told the women of this church that they needed to cover their heads. That the Bible teaches that it's disgraceful for a woman to pray or to prophesy, which is the same as preaching, with her head uncovered. At least one of the pillars of the church walked out in a huff that morning. And next Sunday, the women of HVPC still weren't wearing hats. I have to tell you, that's one sermon that I wish we had a recording of in our archives. I've looked for it. I've never seen it. Here's what I would say. The divinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus are all essential Doctrines of the church. They are core beliefs. But women covering their heads is not. Regarding the divinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the second coming of Jesus, the church needs to be ready and willing to judge, to quarrel, and to fight if necessary. But regarding the covering of heads, we should not quarrel and we should not fight. Some doctrines are essential and some are not. As Paul says, About the meat eaters and the vegetarians, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. We may assume that the women who cover their heads, cover them in Honor of the Lord and not in honor of vanity or fashion. And the one who uncovers their heads uncovers it in honor of the Lord and not in honor of vanity or fashion. But Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, each one should be convinced that what they're doing is honoring and pleasing to God. And none of us should judge or criticize in these kinds of matters that are not essential to the faith. We should not judge or criticize in these matters because that judgment and that criticism destroys the unity of the church. In 2014, when it became clear to the session of this church that our old denomination was no longer a good fit for us, that we were not in fact in unity with them and hadn't been for a long time, the session investigated the options that were available to us. And the session chose the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in part because of the motto of the denomination which says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The essentials are worth fighting for. The church must judge regarding core beliefs. But lots of things in church life are non-essential. Whether or not we wear hats. Whether or not we sing to Jesus with guitars and drums or choirs and organs. Whether or not we receive communion in our seats or by going forward. And regarding those things, we are to give each other liberty. Because we have liberty in Christ. Christ. And in all things, whether they are essential or non-essential, we're to treat one another with charity, which is just an old-fashioned word for love. In May, we will have a very special three-day conference here at HVPC. It will be led by the Go Center, which is our denomination's team of experts who work with churches that are eager for greater vitality and growth, churches hungry to make a difference in their neighborhood for the kingdom of God. The Reverend Dr. Ken Pretty, who leads the Go Center, spoke at the EPC's General Assembly in Orlando in 2015, the year before we joined. I happen to have been there. He talked about what causes churches to grow and what causes churches to stagnate and die. And you know what the difference is? Churches that are flourishing have a laser focus on things that are essential and are not distracted by the noise of the non-essentials. And churches that are stuck and declining are the ones that focus on and fight about the non-essentials. Mostly they focus on and fight about their own comfort. And all the while the church is falling down around their ears. God planted this church... (coughs) On Huntington Pike in 1861, since the day this church was born, through passing decades and generations, pastor after pastor, the defining characteristic of this church has been its commitment to the basic truths of the Bible and to an evangelical concern for people who have not yet been saved. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost because he loved those people and because it broke his heart to see people lost and wandering without God, without a purpose and without a shepherd. The very first pastor of this church, George J. Mingans, met Jesus in a revival tent in Philadelphia. He was a member of the Hellfire Club, a group of young rowdies who heckled preachers and disrupted church services. But Jesus got hold of him and turned him around and used him to find others who were mocking Christ. First here in Huntington Valley, and then during the civil war among slaves in the South, and then on to a long and well-documented career of taking the message of Jesus to people who hadn't heard. Preacher after preacher in this pulpit has preached the same basic, simple message In Christ there is forgiveness of sin. In Christ there is a way to be at peace with God. In Christ there is purpose and a future. My prayer for this blessed church is that we continue to focus on the essentials. And that we continue to give each other grace and liberty in the non-essentials. And that in all things that we speak and act in love toward one another to the glory of Christ, for the witness of Christ to the world. This is our goal. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. And we pray this day that we would have our eyes on you and on the truth of your gospel. Lord, I pray that we would see and know and cling to and believe the essentials of this faith that has been proclaimed for so many centuries. And Lord, I pray that as we find freedom in the gospel, we might find freedom to give our brothers and sisters freedom in Christ, that we wouldn't demand having our way with them, that we would give liberty and that we would receive liberty. Lord, I pray that as we are free with ourselves and free with others and as we are laser focused on the truths of the gospel, Lord, I pray that this congregation would continue to bring you honor and bear witness to you in this community. I pray that we would be a place that is receiving the lost and the wandering and the questioning receiving them into fellowship day after day and week after week. Lord, we pray that you be honored and glorified in our lives because you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Amen.